I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I am here on a beautiful Friday in Newport Beach, California, where the sun is shining outside and we should all be at the beach. And I'm with my two colleagues and friends, Mr. Sean Latimer and Dea Pernas. Not at the beach. Not Hello, the everyone. Beach. <laughs> Hello. Wouldn't that be nice recording live from the beach in Newport Beach, California next week, maybe, Glenn? Maybe we'll do that. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about an article I wrote called Dumbfounded by Diversification. And I wanted to talk about this idea of how words sometimes can get lost in translation. I started out with a story that I thought was funny. Um, All of us around this table are living in California, so we're very familiar with the fact that you get really good Mexican food in California. I didn't know this when I was younger, when I started traveling around the United States to compete for cycling, that you won't find great Mexican food in other parts of the country. Therefore, when I had friends come visit, I had to show off and say, let me take you to a real Mexican restaurant. But they always had trouble ordering. My friend from upstate New York, uh, he came with me once and he was asking me questions like, remind me, what's the difference again between a taco and a burrito? Which I think is funny, but for him, I was like, I get it. You never order it, whatever. So uh, waiter comes, we do our ordering. He made it through. I was proud of him. And then as the waiter's walking away, he says, hey, one last thing. Can we start out with nachos? And I was like, wow, man, this guy is hungry. He just ordered like a Mondo burrito and he wants to start out with nachos. All right, we're doing this. So, uh, you know, 10 minutes later, nachos come out and he looks at the food and then looks at me super confused. He's like, what are these? And I said, well, these are the nachos you ordered. And he's like, oh, I just wanted the things that you like dip in the sauce. And I was like, like chips and salsa? Because he was used to, when he went to a Mexican restaurant, that came out first. Mm. I'm like, yeah, that's not nachos. Those are two different things. So uh, for me, it's a comical story that I share with my friend. But uh, I also realize it's very easy for things to get lost in translation. And I find that as a financial advisor, even things like the word diversification, I feel like it's very, very lost in translation. And people start to use adages, like don't put all your eggs in one basket, in scenarios where they're actually not applicable. It makes sense, too, because it's normally tied to a moment where they maybe received bad advice, and then it kind of reinforces that feeling. They're like, oh, this person gave me bad advice. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You you have to diversify opinions and think in different ways. But I think what happens is, uh, and you mentioned in the article, it actually puts a lot more responsibility on the client, and the whole idea is they're outsourcing this because they don't want to do it themselves. Yeah, they started applying diversification. And we'll break this into sections because it was a longer article than I I would have liked to write, but I had a lot of thoughts I wanted to kind of... You could write a whole book, a whole series. Yeah, Yeah, and maybe you could start us out because you're uh, on the analyst side. Um, Maybe just define diversification for our listeners. How would you translate it into layman terms? Yeah, it's interesting. And I also want to see how you guys discuss it with with your clients. But as far as uh, diversification from a portfolio viewpoint... It's important to realize that why diversification is even a thing. Like, what is the purpose of diversification? How does it work in your portfolio? Is it a tool? Can it be overdone? And I think all those things, you know, involve uh, a long form discussion. Um, but the idea of diversification, and uh, Trevor mentioned uh, Harry Markowitz, who in the early '50s really started this modern portfolio movement, and diversification was really, really born. And it was uh, the concept was to reduce risk in a portfolio, uh, and it was a tool to to help you do just that. And I think it's also important first to maybe define risk, 
uh, and how we define risk is there is uh, a likelihood of a reduction in your future wealth or your future cash flows or whichever way you want to look at it. And diversification was a way to help reduce that risk. And it it did that by owning uh, different, uh, different securities in your portfolio that did different things, essentially. And, you know, you can see all these different studies where the amount of return that you can expect isn't necessarily hindered if you start uh, if you start adding different uh, you know, different positions that don't really correlate to the position that you currently own in your portfolio, and it was a way of uh, kind of bringing that risk down. And and if you look at the studies, and uh, you know Trevor put up a, a graph, you know after you own about you know twenty or twenty five different types of positions in different industries, you kind of get the full benefit of the diverse, of that diversification. And uh, I think really what you see today in most portfolios is uh, that tool is very, very overdone. And uh, people, uh, there's almost like a false sense of security with some of the diversification that I see where people own 200, 300 different positions and every single asset class in the world. And they and they feel like, okay, this is uh, maybe some, I, I feel uh, like, you know, my, my risk is reduced. And really, you have to understand that there is a, the market risk in your portfolio is still prevalent. And just because you own maybe 8 trillion positions, it doesn't necessarily mean that your risk has went away or you don't have risk. So I think that uh, the over, when, when diversification is kind of overdone, then you stop really understanding the risk in your portfolio and, and you lose the intuition for what diversification is supposed to do. Uh, it was a bit of a long-winded answer. but And wouldn't that kind of defeat the purpose of the active management by owning so many positions? Wouldn't it almost react more like an index? Yeah. I mean, so that's exactly what happens. If you own the entire market, uh, then you're, uh, you, stop, you stop having uh, an active portfolio. It's purely a passive uh, portfolio. And a passive portfolio will move in line uh, you know, with the overall market. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, the definition of diversification is is trying to own uh, different uh, different securities in your portfolio that don't necessarily correlate with each other, and that gives you that benefit of reducing the risk. So, so yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit more too because I think you brought up some really good points. But to help our listeners, uh, one of the things you were talking about at first was just hey, how do I diversify within the stock market? Like you were saying, there's a difference between owning one company or two companies or 10 companies or 40 companies. But you were also saying as you own more individual companies, you're essentially reducing your risk that, you know, one CEO could, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. go off the deep end and have a litigation or there could be some sort of fraud like we're familiar with uh, that's happened in the past. So if you own little pieces of a lot of companies, you kind of reduce the chance of one of those really bad things happening. Yes, exactly, and, uh, and 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 you know we have we have a lot of clients who have large concentrated positions. Either they inherited them, or you know they work maybe they worked uh, at a company for an extremely long period of time and accumulated this large position, and uh, they feel somehow that n- nothing really bad can happen in this company. Like you know I I've owned IBM for X amount of years, and nothing bad can really happen. And uh, it's important to realize that, yeah, you're probably right. It, the likelihood is probably high that nothing bad can happen. But because there exists some probability that something bad can happen, and in the event that it does, you see a massive, uh, a massive reduction in the market value of your position. It'll drop 30 or 40, 50%. And like Trevor said, if there's a scandal at a company or 
uh, you know, you figure out the, the, the management was fraudulent or all these things that it's very, very difficult. Uh, you know, I guess what I'm saying, there's an irreducible level of uh, certain risk. Yeah, one thing own- I, I mentioned in the article is that as you add additional companies, you're losing your potency mm-hmm. of diversification. Um, and the other thing you're mentioning, it's not always binary like uh, go out of business or stay in business. Sometimes there's an opportunity cost element, right? If I owned uh, an investment in one sector or industry or one company that struggled for a decade, there's an opportunity cost of what are the other things that I could have owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't always have to be, uh, you know, make or break. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be make or break. Uh, and the idea is, look, uh, we none of us at this table know the future. And uh, a range of outcomes is possible. And you want to prepare your portfolio for the you know all these different possibilities, and you want it, your portfolio to perform perform well in, with these different ranges of outcomes. And to do that, you need to own uh, different, like like Trevor's saying, different companies in different sectors and in different industries, and that helps you get that benefit of diversification. And it actually goes furthermore, and I'll give you a chance to chat on this too, Sean, but um, we're isolating the conversation right now about the stock market. Mm -hmm. Then once you get outside of the stock market, there's another aspect of diversification that you could have other assets that behave differently than the stock market. And then you can all of a sudden begin to um, try to control the behavior, not control, but uh, manage the behavior of the portfolio by understanding how these different asset classes could potentially behave. I was thinking the exact same thing. You know, we're talking a lot about stocks, but um, stocks are a very vague term. The, not all companies are built the same, and they definitely don't react the same in, in typical market environments. So when you do look at when typically when people talk about asset allocation or diversification, they're thinking the combination of stocks, bonds, and other things, um, not necessarily just what kind of stocks or what kind of bonds or what kind of alternatives. So you're right that there are layers to look at, and it is hard. You, you fall into it's a lot of behavior management, too, because it's really easy to look at things that have done well and things that haven't done well and said, why would we take money from here and put it there mm. or vice versa? Um, it, it's almost like a contrarian belief when you think you want to rebalance and add to the things that are discounted and take from the things that are expensive. But when you're looking at green and red in your summary or on your statement, it's hard to think that way. And it's probably common thought because that's probably where momentum strategies come from is that uh, the green of the screen attracts more buyers and the red attracts more sellers. And then you have some velocity in one direction or the other. But what we can conclude for our listeners to simplify it is that diversification is a form or a strategy or an implementation to reduce risk. But unfortunately, because I actually don't like this truth, is that diversification, uh, it only works so much, right? If we're mm-hmm. eliminating business risk, we can't eliminate market risk. So there is a diminishing return to the aspect of diversification. I wish that wasn't true, because then all of us would be in a race to just buy as many assets as we can mm-hmm. to continue reducing risk. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. The un- other thing that clients don't often know or think about and all kind of Again, Baton passed this to you today to talk about, but is that diversification isn't always the same, is that there's this adage within the industry that says uh, when things get ugly, correlations tend to go to one, which means that uh, if I thought my international stocks were going to behave differently than my domestic stocks, or my large stocks were going to behave differently than my small stocks, or my junk bonds were going to behave differently than my equities, uh, that starts to not be true. And it becomes really frustrating to a client because then they feel like diversification is not working. 
Right, exactly. And this is this is what I think the our industry has wrong because they conflate volatility and risk, and those those things are very very different. Uh, if you could think of volatility as the intra, you know how your portfolio moves throughout a day or throughout a week, uh, you know through you know, relative to the regular market, you know regularized market movement, and uh, if you own a lot of a lot of different securities and a lot of different industries and a lot of different asset classes, you can help reduce that volatility. But you don't necessarily reduce your risk, and obviously, you know we've we've tried to find risk here. Uh, you know, obviously, it's a reduction of uh, your future cash flows your future, or your future wealth. Not necessarily is my vol- 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 or is my portfolio less volatile? Uh, is it moving? Is it zigging and zagging less than it did yesterday? That doesn't really to us that matters way less than is there a lot of risk in your portfolio? And uh, what Trevor talked about how. Uh, you know, risk and how diversification and correlations aren't necessarily the same over time. And during, uh, if you look at the data, during times of great market stress, most of what people do is they sell and they sell generally almost everything, <laughs> almost everything. Non-discriminate, everything. Right, yeah. exactly. And when that happens, the prices of those things they sell go down. And uh, generally speaking, they go down in unison. And uh, all this portfolio that you, that you thought was great and very well diversified, all of a sudden, all these different asset classes start to perform pretty similarly and uh, may not give you that diversification benefit that you expected. Uh, so it's important to realize that w- what you're building a portfolio for and really the purpose of diversification is to help you during times of extreme market stress. So you have to really understand that how will this asset class not only perform uh, throughout a regular market environment, but how has this asset class that I'm adding to my portfolio contributed to diversification how, and how has it performed during the worst of market environments. And uh, once you start understanding that and approaching the portfolio from the risk management side first, you start to put together a properly diversified portfolio instead of one that's just like, you know, uh, you know just uh, window dressing or, uh, or, or lip service, really. So, Yeah, I think... Uh I think we talk a lot about diversification on the investment side. And then, Trevor, you mentioned in the article, and I think that this isn't talked about enough because I see it all the time when people try to diversify custodians. Um, so I don't know if you want to jump to that yet. but Yeah, uh, let's do it. Maybe you could help our clients because it's not a – custodians is not a common term, but I don't actually have a replacement term because uh, calling it a bank a might bank. be confusing yeah, yeah. as well. So, so uh, it's just where a client holds their investment assets. Uh, and these next two topics we're going to talk about um, – Dea has talked about the technical side, which I then think has confused clients to bring it to the mechanical side of where you get your advice and where you hold your investments. And I'll let you expand on that, Sean. Absolutely. Uh, There there has been countless times where I'll come across client statements and and helping them get organized. And I'll ask pretty basic questions. Why do you hold these accounts here and those accounts there? And they truly think that they want to diversify where they hold the money because it would benefit them if something were to happen. And and it kind of baffles me because then it's more and I'll ask questions like, oh, are you thinking more like cybersecurity? That one company, like a, I don't know, are we allowed to say the company's names? Like a uh, ABC Bank, ABC <laughs> Bank that uh, has a green logo, holds six seven trillion dollar assets, or a, another bank that has a blue logo and holds five trillion dollars in assets. If your concern is one has better security for t- future. Uh, features than the other, then yeah, maybe I could understand. Or I think you mentioned the article aesthetically, if you like a service they offer and you want to use it for a portion of your assets, that would make sense. But most of the time, the reason why they have them separated is 
it's going to sound kind of harsh. One is laziness because it was, it came from that place and it stayed there because it's easier to leave it alone than try to change it. Or two, they truly think that they're better off by holding similar investments in two different places. But as you talk about in the article, it actually just creates nothing but headaches and problems in the future, whether they're doing their taxes and they're trying to collect documents, whether something unexpected happens to a family member and they need to change the account types or titling, or if they're ultimately just trying to track what type of investments they own and how they've performed. It makes it much more confusing. So it's this idea that when we take this concept of diversification, which Dea taught us that it's very relative to risk, in this situation, it's not relative to risk. And uh, I said it in jest a little bit in the article, but I was saying, yeah, if you want a diversified web page or you want diversified account documents or you want diversified uh, 1-800 numbers, yeah. <laughs> then yeah, you're going to accomplish that. But if you think you're diversifying to reduce risk, you're absolutely not. And I think you hit on it, Sean, uh, is that it just creates a mechanical headache. Uh, I mentioned in the article that I moved recently and I'm busy. I have a lot of things going on, being a, a father, a, an advisor, and uh, involved in my church. Like, I, I'm not trying to complain, and it, maybe it sounds silly, but literally changing our address for all of our credit cards, mm. our banks, um, our healthcare provider, our employer, there's some work there. Um, and I am a, a huge uh, believer in simplicity, and I don't have a lot of institutions I deal with. So I can't imagine if I had the norm, even more institutions. And then I was trying to tackle an even bigger problem than just changing my address. Like you said, collecting tax forms or, God forbid, settling in the state. I, I know close to my heart, I have a widow that I've helped that settled her, her um, late husband's estate, and he didn't organize these things. And that's not a dig on him. That's the norm, mm-hmm. right? I, I mentioned in the article, I call it like a messy garage. Like most of us have clutter and dust, and our garages don't look like the inside of our houses, problem is when that happens with your finances and then your heirs are left to kind of clean up that mess it is the biggest headache at the worst possible time in life um going through probate trying to provide copies of death certificates um working with every different institutions forms the departments that handle this you don't want to do that Um, and people don't like when i say that because they're like ah that's never going to happen to me but honestly, it's not really fair to your family. And I don't know, maybe that's unfair for me to say it that way. But if diversification is about reducing risk, and if we say that diversifying amongst custodians doesn't reduce risk, then the question's back, or the ball's back in your court. What's the reason behind it? And I think that segues nicely into the next topic, which is too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, we talked about this idea. I'll let you just go on it. Yeah, it's this idea that, you know, we seek advice from investment professionals and the idea is we're using that advice to put together a financial plan or an investment allocation. Well, what happens is when you introduce more than one chef who's creating a meal, they could have a different opinion on things, which complicates the plan. Or essentially, if you split it in half, the plan might not work because two different chefs are doing two different things. And I think it works the same way in investment management. If you have two polarizing beliefs that believe something that are maybe the opposite and you try to put them together, it won't work. What has been your experience as far as discussing with clients that you've engaged with, Dea, about this idea of having multiple advice givers? When I use the word advice givers, financial planner, financial advisor, whatever word you want to use. Well, I think like like you were saying, um, as far as the diversification, or excuse me, uh, diversifying uh, people who are giving you advice, whether it be on the planning side uh, you know, financial planning, uh, estate planning, or whether it be on the advisor side, you just really understand what is 
what is the cost of diversification and what is the benefit? And, re- and I think doing the root level work to understand that and not just automatically feeling like, okay, I don't have all my eggs in one basket and, uh, you know, just running with this, uh, you know, hu- heuristic that can be over applied, uh, I think can help you make better decisions around who you, who you, uh, who you trust with your advice. But, you know, I mean, if, if you think about your situation and who you are going to trust with your advice, I imagine, you know, having, you know, 10, 12, 15 different advice people who are giving you advice may not be an optimal solution. And having, uh, you know, something that's uh, just a bit a bit easier and a bit more simplified uh, will translate to uh, a better peace of mind and, and, a, and a deeper uh, relationship. So uh, it's, it's interesting because I think this talk could almost be done in a series where we talk about diversification of, uh, you know, at the portfolio level, the diversification of, of, of advisors, and then diversification of, uh, you know, as far as custodians and banks and so on. And I think there's so much to, uh, to add and to talk about. But as far as uh, if when I have uh, talked with clients about should I diversify my advisors, I usually don't have those conversations because when I'm talking to a client, they trust their advisor and they're happy and it's a great setup for them. They realize the benefit to the relationship. So my, my uh, conversation with clients is mainly around getting them to understand diversification of portfolio level a lot better. Yeah, that makes sense. This for me is a really hard conversation to have. Like it literally, you're going to both laugh at me, but like it makes me sad because what I have to tell the person across from me is that you have to use your intuition to figure out who to trust. Hmm. And trust is a really scary thing. But the problem is when you start adding multiple advice givers into a scenario, the problem is you elevate yourself as the investor that then you have to reconcile all that advice. And it makes it much more difficult. And there will be no perfect analogy, but whatever it is, if we're talking about a chef or we're talking about getting heart surgery and you want to invite two head surgeons in to do the work, it's just not going to work. And the problem that I see in the world of finance is it gives clients a sub-optimal result because then what happens? What if the two advisors are managing portfolios that are creating redundancies that neither are aware of? Um, how do you reconcile those risks? What if they're giving different advice? What if somebody wants to understand how or when to take Social Security and one has a very different opinion than the other? I think that there is something to be said of the wisdom and counsel of many, but I have not seen it successful unless, and this is the rare case where I just don't see it happening, unless both advisors are willing to sit in the same room with the client and it's a collaborative process, and that's just not very likely. The problem that I see is that me advocating for this is somebody could say you have a conflict of interest because mm-hmm. you want more of that person's wallet share. That's what makes me sad because I'm like, I don't want to push for this or uh, lobby for this for that reason. I almost want to just bow out and say, if you feel like you trust that person more, it's better for you to consolidate there because that way you guys can build a holistic plan and advice. And to me, this is not a small thing. This is a huge thing uh, because when a relationship is built with a foundation of trust, you can do incredible things. The problem, which makes people a little bit shy towards this or um, is if they've been burned in the past, mm-hmm. is if they really inherently trusted somebody and it went sour for them, which that's why I'm sensitive to say like, 
hey, I want to give you room to breathe. I'm just telling you it's very suboptimal, and I'll try to do my best to make this puzzle piece fit together because I like you and I want this to work. I just want you to know that you're hiring somebody because you want peace of mind, you want to hold accountable somebody, and ultimately you're pointing that right back to you once you introduce multiple advice givers because you have to reconcile all that. It's very true. There, there are a lot of uh, businesses out there that would be more than happy to just open an account for you and take a portion of your wallet share because um, they work in a very transactional business and, and they'll take any dollars they can come. But that should almost be a red flag to you that, um, like Trevor said, there have been times where we will tell people who might be interested in becoming clients that, hey, you know what, if, if you've been XYZ for that amount of years and you trust that person, you should probably send these assets that way and consolidate it to one place to simplify your state, make the investment management more seamless. And and it's true. We're not saying that to as a money grab to get more of their assets or um, or that we think that we're just better than everyone else. It's not even that either. It's really what's best for the client. And sometimes it's hard for them to separate that salesmanship and advice and because it, it almost sounds like we're just selling them. And it's it's not the case. So I, I think it... It's true. If you're, if you're willing to bow out and say, hey, listen, maybe it's better you go somewhere else, it should give the person more confidence. But um, yeah, just be wary if people are willing to open an account and don't really ask questions about the overall holistic view and and uh, that, that should set an alarm off. Yeah. And if somebody wants it to be more practical, I mean, it's as easy as this. In like October, November, a lot of times I'm emailing clients to see when we're doing tax loss harvesting, uh, what their picture looks like. It's really easy when I have all their accounts, I know what we're, we are looking against that these capital gains are trying to be offset. Um, if there's a surprise in another account, which happened for a client where uh, I emailed their CPA everything and he came back and he said, well, you didn't tell me about this. And I said, I didn't know about that. Um, and uh, the, the client was ultimately upset and I, I just kind of had to explain that was unknowable for me. Uh, and that's the importance of understanding that when you're working uh, on multiple fronts where there is not continuity or there is not clarity, uh, there isn't discussions and transparency, it becomes difficult. And then you have to ask yourself if diversification is about eliminating risk. Are you adding risk or are you eliminating risk? And I think Dave brought up a good point that this could be a series. One of the reasons I wanted to kind of smush it together is the same idea of chips and salsa and nachos is that you can use the same word Mm. in different contexts and sometimes you're not applying it right. So yes, you need diversification at your portfolio level, uh, both within the stock market and other asset classes you need. You don't need diversification in your custodians. You don't need diversification in your advice givers. And you have to understand how those things are very different. I think that's an excellent summation. Is really understanding diversification as a tool. Just like any other tool, it can be overused or misapplied. And you want to really understand the costs, if they are any, and the benefits. And it's very mathematical, quantifiable on the portfolio side. Uh, in the other areas of your life, it might be a little different. You might you know, have to use your judgment and, and intuition. So I'm going to loop back and bring back the portfolio side of it, um, okay. which I could be opening Pandora's box right now. But one of the things I ended in the article, which was important to me, and I think it's, it's relevant for our clients, is that I think post Harry Markowitz and this idea of modern portfolio theory, that the industry, the finance industry, has some, so, uh, somewhat become obsessed with this idea of... Um, trying to figure out ways to smooth out returns. And they've introduced all different types of asset classes with this justification of diversification. And I think what gets missed there is that when you build a financial plan, you have to plug in an expected rate of return. 
And sometimes I think clients are, I don't have a perfect way to say this, but they're sacrificing the expected rate of return that they actually need for trying to create some sort of smoother glide path to returns that doesn't really scratch the itch that they should be trying to seek after. Does that resonate with you or does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And the, the idea of it, and essentially diversification mis- misapplied, the idea of diversification, why it's such an amazing idea, it's that, look, uh, you start with one stock in your portfolio and then add another stock. And you can actually keep adding stocks to your portfolio and it brings down your risk and, and it, it can even increase or keep your expected return at the same level. But if you beyond a certain point, you start adding your your thirtieth stock or your thirtieth asset class, and you start to reduce the expected return of your portfolio, and you no longer have a portfolio that is going to give you the returns that you need, uh, you know, for you to achieve your your financial goals. So I I think that understanding that after a certain point, and we see it all the times in portfolios. How many times do you see a client comes over from uh, you know another firm and they they own. Four, you know, four hundred different mutual funds, and each mutual fund owns seven hundred different positions. And you're like, what? Like, do you have any idea what your uh, what your portfolio is doing or what you own? And uh, and I think that it, you know, if you get to that certain point, uh, you start to reduce your expected return. You start, you know, you, you reduce the likelihood that you're gonna uh, you, you'll be successful in achieving your financial goals. And I think that's a really good question that you asked. That could actually be a question like, should I know? Like you're asking somebody, why do you own so much? I think that there probably is a level of understanding, a minimum level of understanding clients should have, where uh, if your advisor is presenting something to you that feels extremely esoteric, then it's totally okay to pull on that thread and ask questions because you want to understand what you own. You know, if a client comes over and they have, you know, 30% 30% of their portfolio in a foreign currency, um, you want to understand what is the narrative behind this or what's the reasoning behind this. And we laugh when I say that, but I've experienced it. And I wrote an article about it that there was an advisor that I personally knew that had a kind of an Armageddon outlook on markets. And that is how he designed portfolios. I wish his clients would have asked about that because if they don't have that outlook, that's the wrong portfolio and ultimately getting back to what a portfolio needs to do and needs to be the foundation that supports the financial plan. So the financial plan is going to tell you what the expected rate of return needs to be. Um, you don't need to solve for some sort of financial ratio or Monte Carlo analysis or something beyond saying, does the financial plan solve for the objectives you're trying to solve for? Yeah. I think that happens a lot too. People are almost, uh, I don't want to say brainwashed, that's the wrong word, but they, they just think, you know, I'm entering retirement, I need to change my investment options to be much more conservative. And you would ask, you know, well, what type of expected returns do you need to be successful in your plan? And they won't know. But they've been told this entire time that they are retiring and they need to have 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Um, it's interesting, a lot of the 401k lineups, when they when they do the census of the employees, depending on the age and the demographics, they will uh, adjust the investment options offered and make them more conservative if most of the employees are later in life or getting close to retirement. But I almost chuckle when I think about that because um, that might not apply at all. Because what if a majority of those people do need a 3 or 4 or 5% rate of return or income, and we know that the more conservative investment options are going to generate maybe 1% to 2 that doesn't accomplish their goals at all. Uh, but it could maybe... If they open up their choices and they don't have someone helping them and they just look at the uh, stars rating or what the 401k provider says to pick, they may be picking the investments that are guaranteeing they're not going to be successful in retirement. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. I think uh, just f- focusing too, just uh, generally focusing too much on ratios and 
sharp ratios, and, and even expected return, a point estimate for expected return, and it needs to be 7% and, and not 6.3 or you know whatever the deal is, I think uh, can add a lot of complexity. And at the end of the day, I think your portfolio should be simple and you should be able to understand what you own and why you own them. And the advisor should very clearly explain those things to you. I mean, we are in the communications business. And if you can't communicate clearly, uh, you know, the benefit of, of the certain things you own, then your, your client shouldn't own them. So, uh, you know, I think if it all get, t- gets tied to investment philosophy at the end of the day, it should be understandable. So uh, I think you should ask, you know, listeners should ask themselves, do I understand my portfolio? And I know, obviously, you guys do a great job of explaining that to clients uh, every day. So. And I think there's a clarification point in this, too, that I'm thinking, hey, if I was in a client's shoes, is that how do you hold these two things to be true? Is that I can't predict the future, but I can give you an idea of expected returns? And I want to explain that to you. When we say we can't predict the future is in the short term, we really don't know what's going to happen. But when you look at asset classes that have uh, historical data that you can study, when you start to look out longer time horizons, 10, 15, 20 years, the dispersion of potential outcomes become a lot tighter. Um, and you have a general understanding of how that asset should behave. As an example, um, not a perfect example, but if you look at something like, I don't know, uh, short-term U.S. government treasuries, uh, the best predictor of what the expected return there is what the yield is. And the correlation there is very tight uh, for pretty uh, easy to yeah, understand that, that, reasons. That's a good one. That's, yeah. that's a good predictor. Um, but the uh, that truth applies uh, across different asset classes, and it should be explainable, uh, and it should be reasonable, and it should have some historical precedence. Um, when you go outside of that scheme, the problem that I see, and I'll wrap us up here a little bit, but um, other advisors that I've heard have said, hey, we're going to put you in a little bit of these alternatives, a little bit of this, and they've learned that because that is the lingo of the industry, and that's the commonplace. But if that's not what the client needs, and if that expected return um, that that asset class is historically delivered is not sufficient for their financial plan, then there's no purpose to own it. Um, and one thing when I was writing this article, funny but weird analogy, uh, my, my in-laws come over for dinner a lot, and uh, I, I love making guacamole. <laughs> and every time my mother-in-law has my guacamole, she's like, man, what do you put in this? And I'm like, you ask that every time. And I tell her, and the ingredients are super simple. Because when I first started making guacamole, I, I call it the kitchen sink guacamole. I just put everything in it, and it was like, this isn't very good. But you start to learn that if you get like a really good avocado, and you use some salt and pepper, and maybe mm. some lime, and you mix it up with some red onion – that is enough to make really good guacamole. Like every ingredient has a reason and it's complementary or uh, it's a complement of one of the other uh, pieces in the guacamole. Portfolios are a lot like that. You don't have to have a kitchen sink portfolio. Like you can have a few pieces that fit really good together that solve for a financial plan. And this idea of Occam's razor, like you don't have to lean into complexity just for the purpose of complexity. There is a simple solution to find an optimal result. Absolutely. I love your culinary analogies. Trevor Trevor really loves Mexican food. I do. I do. I do. I love it. I I still haven't tried your your guacamole yet, by the way. I will bring my guacamole in for you. Um, But all that to say, uh, this article is really about how things can be lost in translation. And whether we talked about diversification or many other financial terms, there's a whole vocabulary of finance or a language of finance that can be confusing. And that's why you need an advisor. And, uh, 
I'm an advisor saying that you need an advisor. Do I have a bias? Maybe. Um, but I will say I've seen a lot of people get themselves in trouble taking a financial vocabulary and applying it to the wrong situation. And it can have negative results uh, on what they were hoping for in their portfolio or their financial plan. So that's all we have for you this week. Um, hopefully this spawns some questions or comments. You can email us at tom at thebonsagroup.com. Like I always say, you can address it to Sean, Trevor, Dea, any of us would be happy to answer your questions. Um, we ask that you rate the podcast. Five stars is preferred, but uh, whatever you're feeling. Uh, comments are welcome as well. And uh, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.